Good morning. It's good, it's good to be worshiping together this morning. <clears throat> we were gone last Sunday at a family reunion and, and missed y'all. This week, I was asking the Lord, what do you want to say to me? What do I need? And verse, 1 Peter 5, 7 kept coming to my mind. Just come back to me, casting all your cares on him, for he careth for you. And I turned to the passage to look at the context. I discovered the, the subject is actually humility. The last time I, I preached here, a couple of weeks ago, I preached on the fear of God. And the fear of God is having a proper perspective of God. Today I want to speak briefly about humility from 1 Peter chapter 5. And humility is having a proper perspective of myself. going to read First uh, Peter 5. I'll, actually, I'll go ahead and read uh, 1 through 11. I'm not going to comment on the first four verses, really. First Peter 5, 1 through 11. <clears throat> Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. In verse 5, he addresses younger men. Why, why specifically mention young men? I don't know for sure. Maybe it's because young men are full of energy, ideas, and want to make things happen. So it may be hard to submit to elders. They can often feel like, my dad's generation just doesn't get it. 
You know, let me be clear. We need the energy and the ideas of young people, young men. We need that. And young people also need the advice of older people with life experience. It can save a lot of heartache. I'll tell you a story to illustrate that. My first car, I, I badly wanted a Buick Grand National when I was a teenager. At the time, that was the fastest factory car on the road in the US. I wanted one of those things bad. And I kept saying this, and my dad would say, Nate, what's that going to do for you? What good will that be? That's just a ticket maker. And what are you going to do with all that speed? Because I had everything memorized, all the, you know, how fast it was, 0 to 60, and on and on, how much horsepower. Cars were far too important to me. And uh, my dad tried to talk sense to me. I was 19 at the time, and dad told me I, I won't be able to afford the insurance. I was single, under 25. That, for the insurance company, is two red flags, and they hit you hard. You, you pay a lot for insurance. So he said I wouldn't be able to afford the insurance. He also warned me that the turbo on that engine was uh, just more maintenance. It was unnecessary. It was going to cost me a lot of money. Well, long story short, I was too proud to take advice. I was bound and determined I was going to have that car because I found one that was used and I had the money in the bank to pay for it, so I bought the car. Well, Alfie can probably tell you the next part of the story. Alfie bought a car about the same time and we, they were first car for each of us. And one Saturday, Alfie called me up and said, Beachy, let's go out, let's go drive in our cars. Well, we couldn't ride together in one of the cars. We both needed to drive our first car. So we followed each other around Fairfax County. We we're driving, just driving around, enjoying our, our new cars. Well, on that little trip, while I was driving, the oil pump quit working on my engine. And it started knocking terrible. As soon as the knocking started, I pulled over and turned it off. I said, oh no, that sounds terrible. Well, it seized up the engine. And the turbo was oil cooled. And so the turbo was done deal. It was, it was ruined. So within the first week of owning the car, the engine and the turbo were shot. The car sat at the dealership for several months while I paid a, a small fortune in insurance, paid to have the engine rebuilt, paid for a brand new turbo, and eventually this thing got on the road again. I drove the car for several months and I kept looking at the checks I was writing to the insurance company and I decided, you know what, dad's right. I can't afford this thing. They are just hammering me on insurance and so after owning the car only eight months and driving it a little over half of that, I got rid of it, sold the car. The experience hurt my bank account and I'm grateful that it it only hurt my bank account. <clears throat> Howard Hendricks said, experience is not the best teacher. Guided experience is the best teacher. But I wasn't humble enough to accept 
guidance. In 1 Peter 5, 5, we're told to, he dresses, he was speaking to younger men, then says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Clothing yourselves. It refers to the white apron that slaves would put on that made them recognizable as a slave. They would wear that to serve. And humility should make us recognizable as a follower of Christ. Peter may also have been remembering when he said that how Jesus clothed himself with a towel and washed Peter's feet and all the other disciples when no one was willing to do it themselves. No one was willing to humble themselves to do the slave's job. And Jesus did it. When I am clothed with the attitude of humility, then I'm ready to serve others. Peter gives us the reason for humility, and that's Proverbs 3.34, quoted at the end of verse 5. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, the verbs opposed to and give grace are their present tense. They stress that these actions are God's constant activity. It's ongoing. Opposed to the proud. Pride is a conceited sense of one's superiority. Feeling superior to those around them. The story told of, well, who, how many of you remember Muhammad Ali when he was a, a number of you do, not as many as I thought, so apparently I'm older than I thought. Um, Muhammad Ali hasn't been around for a while, but he was a world champion heavyweight boxer was known for his knockouts. He, I think he fought a total of 61 fights, and over half of those were knockouts. Muhammad Ali was once flying somewhere. He was in a 747, sitting in his seat, and the plane backed out and started taxiing down the runway for takeoff. And the flight attendant was doing what she's supposed to do and was coming down the aisle. She noticed he didn't have his seatbelt on. She said, excuse me, sir, you need to put on your seatbelt. Muhammad looked up, arrogantly looked up and snapped, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she fired right back at him. She was a quick thinker and she fired right back and said, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> <laughs> thought that was a pretty good line, but his, his attitude, he doesn't need a seatbelt because he's a tough guy. He's, he can knock people out. Well, he's not going to fare any better than anyone else if the plane crashes or even runs into something on the runway. He won't fare better than anyone else, but he saw himself as superior. He's above other people. I'm not going to turn to these for time's sake, but in Psalm 10, verse 4, we're told pride hinders coming to God. Jeremiah 43, 2 says pride makes man reject 
God's word. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction. I think of Nebuchadnezzar, the proud ruler of the Babylonian Empire. He lost his sanity for seven years. I'm going to turn briefly to Daniel chapter 4. Read a few verses there. You're familiar with the account in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30. King is walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself has built, have built as a royal residence, with the might of my power, for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven, saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Jumping down to verse 37, we're told in verse 34 that he raised his eyes to heaven. He looked to God. Then in verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are true, and his ways are just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar found out that God is opposed to the proud, and it wasn't pleasant. And in the end, he recognized that God is in charge, and that what he does is right and good. You know, God also gives grace to the humble. Grace is, can be defined different ways. It's undeserved blessing, freely bestowed on man by God. Grace has also been defined as the desire and the power to do God's will. God gives grace to the humble. A missionary to India once said, and I quote, if I were to pick out two phrases necessary for spiritual growth, I would pick out these. I don't know, and I'm sorry. Both phrases are evidences of humility. I would not have thought of those as evidence of humility, but if you think about it, a proud person knows. They always have the answer. And it's difficult for a proud person to say, I'm sorry. Those are evidences of humility. Humility is lowliness of mind, according to Strong's Concordance. And Webster says it's having a modest opinion of one's own importance or rank. I'm going to turn to Philippians chapter 2 and notice... The example of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to jump in at verse 3 and read through 11. 
Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A footnote in my Bible in verse 7, where it says, but emptied himself. Footnote says, or laid aside his privileges. Can you imagine how much Jesus laid aside to come to earth and walk this earth as a human? I, I don't think we can grasp what all or how much Jesus laid aside for you and I. Talk about humility. He laid aside what was his right or privileges. Someone has said, and I failed to write down who I'm quoting, he who places himself neither higher nor lower than he ought practices the truest humility. So God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I am choosing either to have Almighty God oppose me or to bless me. It's my choice. Verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. The mighty hand of God throughout Scripture, God's hand is symbolic of protection and discipline. Protection and discipline. Pride hates being under anything or anyone. I think in this verse, too, it's important to notice at the proper time. He may exalt you at the proper time. When I am impatient with God's timing, it shows that I'm proud. I think I know better than God. Have you ever felt like, come on, God, you need to do something? Unfortunately, I have. And who do I think I am? That I know better than God? I don't. God's timing is right. A humble person can wait on God's timing. <clears throat> Verse 7 was the verse that I kept thinking about. Casting your care upon him, for he careth for you, as the King James says in the New American Standard, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Peter is speaking from experience here. 
Let me list just a couple of the ways that Jesus cared for Peter. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, sickness. Jesus gave Peter a huge catch of fish when he could catch nothing. And Peter was a fisherman. Jesus calmed a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus helped Peter pay his temple tax. Remember, he told him, go catch a fish, and the first fish you catch, open his mouth, and there's the money for your temple tax. Jesus repaired the damage that Peter did to the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant, with a sword. Jesus repaired that, and Jesus delivered Peter from prison. Twice, actually. You know, in thinking about Peter, in Luke 22, I'm not going to turn there, but in Luke chapter 22, on the evening of Jesus' arrest, Jesus had warned Peter that he would fall. He said, when you have turned again, strengthen your brother. He, he warned him, and Peter argued and said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison and to die with you. You don't know how committed I am. I'm, I'm ready. He didn't like what Jesus was saying to him. Later that evening, in the Garden of Gethsemane, two times, Jesus told Peter to pray. What was Peter's response? He fell asleep. Twice. Jesus came back, woke him, said, pray that you don't fall into temptation. And Peter fell asleep. We're told in Luke 22, verse 45, that the disciples were asleep from sorrow or asleep exhausted from grief. When they came to arrest Jesus, then Peter jumps into action to make good on his promise. He's going to defend Jesus. And he jumps into action with his sword. And Jesus had to stop him because Peter wasn't doing what Jesus wanted him to do. You know, I see myself in Peter. Too often, I think I have the answer. I want to make things happen without investing time in prayer. Finding out. What's God's will? What does God want me to do in this situation? Too often, I'm quick to do something instead of seeking. I want to learn to be humble. You know, after Jesus was arrested, Peter was so anxious that he cursed and swore and lied that he didn't even know Jesus when he was under pressure. Peter had resisted Jesus' warning, and he found himself submitting to Satan. What a contrast we see when we go to Acts chapter 12. I believe Peter had learned to cast his care, his cares, his anxieties on Jesus. If you look at Acts chapter 12, and I'm not going to turn there this morning, Peter's, you'll remember that Peter is arrested by Herod. Herod put James, the brother of John, to death, and it pleased the Jews. When Herod saw that, it, that the Jews were happy with him, 
For political advantage, he decides to arrest Peter too, and he'll take care of him too. Going to make the Jews happy. Kill Peter like he did James. He's in prison, and there are 16 soldiers assigned to guard Peter, rotating. There's four soldiers guarding Peter all the time. And he's chained between two soldiers. There's one at the inner gate, and there's one at the outer gate. They're, they've got him covered, they thought. He's not going anywhere. So here he is, chained between two guards the night before his planned execution. And Peter's not tossing and turning. He's not uptight, worried. What's going to be like in the morning? Peter is sound asleep. We're told when the angel comes into the cell and light shines into the cell, the angel has to go over and hit him in the sides, punch him in the ribs, so to speak, because he's out of it. He's sound asleep. I don't think this is the sleep of sorrow. Peter had learned. With the coming of the Holy Spirit, and Peter had learned he could trust Jesus. Jesus could carry his anxieties. I believe Peter was giving the, the cares, the anxieties that he had to Jesus, and he's able to sleep. You know the rest of the story. The angel leads him outside the, the jail. Peter thinks he's dreaming at first and then discovers it's real. He's free. And so he leaves. You know, casting our anxiety on him. I think this verse shows, explains what it means for believers to humble themselves. We can bring our cares to Jesus. Casting all our anxiety on him is a decisive action on our part. It's a choice. I can hang on to it myself. I can say I'm going to make things happen. I've got to do this. Or I can bring it and give it to him. When I properly evaluate myself, I will realize that I desperately need God. J. Sidler Baxter said there are two kinds of care in this verse. There is anxious care in the words, casting all your care upon him. And there is affectionate care in the words, he careth for you. Over against all our own anxious care is our Savior's never failing affectionate care. Two kinds of care. He cares for you. Have you grasped the fact that God cares for you personally? He does. God knows the things that make you anxious and he longs for you to bring them to him. He can handle them. I have the privilege of bringing the things that make me anxious to the creator of the universe. He can handle it. I have to recognize that I need him and come to him in faith. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Moving on from verse 7 in 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. Be of sober spirit and be on the alert. For your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 
But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. The fact that God cares about us is not an excuse to relax and do nothing. We have to be self-controlled and alert. That tells me that our tendency is the opposite. What's the opposite of self-controlled and alert? Maybe it's self-centered and distracted. Self-centered and lazy. You fill in the blank. But we're to be self-controlled instead of self-centered. And to be alert. Because we have a dangerous enemy. Satan was created a powerful, beautiful, highly intelligent angel, Lucifer. He revolted. He wanted to be like God. And so he revolted. Took a third of the angels with him. Was thrown out of heaven. He was brought to judgment. And he's on parole, so to speak. Until God's time comes for him to serve his sentence in hell forever. The place the Bible tells us is prepared for the devil and his angels. Trying to turn, he's trying to turn people against God. He wants people to join in his rebellion against God. We have all sinned, and the penalty of sin is death. Jesus came to take our punishment. He paid our debt with his death and resurrection. We place our faith in what Christ did for us. We can stand in Christ's victory for us to resist Satan. When Satan rebelled, he didn't lose his power, beauty, intelligence. What he did lose but he did lose what enabled him to function properly. And that was his relationship with God. I think we should respect Satan and be alert, be aware, but we don't need to fear because of the Lord Jesus. You know, it's like an electrician that respects the power of electricity. He respects it, but he... He's not afraid. The Bible tells us, verse 8 tells us, that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. How do you think that sounded to the Christians that Peter was writing to? Nero fed Christians to the lions for entertainment. So imagine how that sounded to them. How does a lion hunt? Satan prowls like a roaring lion. A lion hunts by prowling around, it's watching, studies its intended prey, it stalks and waits, and it attacks when its prey least expects anything will happen. Lions attack the sick, the young, the stragglers. They choose victims who are alone and not alert. Another tactic of a lion is to, sometimes they'll have a, a big male, will walk out where the prey, the intended prey can see it. Lions work together. It's amazing the way some of these animals communicate and work together. Big male will walk out and roar 
And when the prey runs in fear the opposite way, there will be several lionesses hiding and catch them when, and they run right to them. Satan will provide many opportunities to fear. We are not to run in fright, but to resist him. James and Peter both had the same formula. Submit to God and resist Satan. It's only when I'm submitted to God that I can resist. Satan has a goal of devouring or gulping down. How do I resist Satan? Or we could ask, how did Jesus resist Satan? I'm not going to turn there because I'm running out of time rapidly. But in Matthew chapter 4, we see how Jesus responded to Satan. Each time he was tempted, he responded with Scripture. Scripture says, it's important that I know the Scripture, that I know the truth. What does Scripture say about what I'm facing? Where do I turn for truth? Where do you turn when you're making decisions? Another passage I'm not going to turn to because I'm running out of time is Ephesians chapter 6. You're familiar with it. Talks about putting on the whole armor of God so we can withstand the wiles of the devil. There are only two things mentioned there that are offensive weapons. And those are prayer and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Those are the weapons to resist Satan. You know, Satan can seem like a vague out there being. Sometimes it's good for me in reading verse 8. Prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour to replace the someone with my name. Seeking Nate to devour or seeking how he's going to devour Nate. Do you, do you think about it that you have an enemy that wants to devour you. He wants, and he does that often through deception. Through twisting. Even Satan even used scripture in tempting Jesus. But he twisted that and wanted to get Jesus to obey him. I need to know the scripture. Because Satan is seeking to devour Nate. It is only when I am submitted to God under his authority that I can resist the devil. The end of verse 9, well, let me just read 9, but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Have you ever felt like you're the only one who experiences whatever it is that you're experiencing? I have. And I want to tell you that's a lie from Satan. Satan is a liar and a deceiver. He wants to have you feel like you're all alone. No one else ever faces the things that you're facing. 
Nate, you're on your own now. And you call yourself a Christian? It's not true. Other people experience the same things. What do you tend to do if you feel like you're the only one? If you feel like you're all alone and what you're experiencing is unique, what do you do? The natural response is isolate yourself. Hide out. And that's when Satan attacks. Humility recognizes that I'm not made to handle life by myself. We need each other. I want to notice in verse 10 that there are three things. Verse 10 says three things about God. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Three things about God. It says that he's the God of all grace. That means he's the source of all help. And he is sufficient for every need that I have. Second, he has called you in his eternal glory in Christ. Eternal glory. Eternal is contrasted with suffering yet a little while. I'm going to tell you our lives here. You can look at your whole life. And if you're, if you're in your teens or 20s, you probably think your life is stretching before you so long. And it's going to take a long time till you get to the ripe old age of 50 like where I am. It goes really quick. If you take your whole life and put it against beside eternity... It's a little, it's not even a drop in the bucket. Eternity is being contrasted here with a little while of suffering. And God has called us into his eternal glory in Christ. Third thing it tells us about God is that God, his, God himself will transform me, to reword it. God himself will transform me. Perfect says that he will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Perfect could be translated restore. It's to complete thoroughly. The word is used in Luke to describe repairing or restoring nets. Confirm is to strengthen or to turn resolutely in a certain direction. He will strengthen. means just that. And it figuratively confirms, confirmed in spiritual knowledge and power. And God, it says, will establish or set us on a solid. Establish is to set on a solid foundation. Wayne Grudem said, in sum, all loss will soon be made right. And that for eternity. It will be set right. That is what God does in me. And I turn to Him when I'm humble. Verse 11 draws attention to God's power that will make this happen. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen.
What happens when I humble myself? Four things. God will exalt me at the proper time. Second, I can bring my anxieties to God. He can handle it. Third, I can resist the devil when I'm in submission to God. And fourth, God will transform me. Make me into the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus. Would you stand, please? Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord, that we can come to you. You are what we need. Lord, we recognize that we, we need you. We can't do life 